It's time for The Outspoken Cyclist, your weekly conversation about bicycles, cyclists, trails, travel, advocacy, the bike industry, and much, much more. You can subscribe to our weekly podcast at OutspokenCyclist.com or through your favorite podcatching app to listen anytime. Now here's your host, Diane Jenks. Hello and welcome to The Outspoken Cyclist. I'm your host, Diane Jenks, and this is our show for October 30th, 2021. It's a treat, not a trick. This week, we're getting back to our roots a little with a new frame builder conversation. When I contacted master frame builder Jeff Bach to arrange our interview, his comment back to me was how I found out about him as he isn't, and I quote, a household name. Clearly, he doesn't know our household. Located in Ames, Iowa, Jeff and I go back to his beginnings talking about bikes, not cars, his scholarship as an artist, and a lot more. Jeff will be with me in a moment. In the second half of the show, we check in with Bina Belinky trahan the owner and producer of the Philly Bike Expo. Next Saturday and Sunday, November 6th and 7th, is the 11th annual Philly Bike Expo at the Philadelphia Convention Center. By all rights, it should be the 12th anniversary of the show, but as with many things COVID, it was put on hold in 2020. This year, even though masks are required inside the building and the test track has been eliminated to expand the space, there's a long list of exhibitors, some terrific seminars, including a talk that I'm delivering on the ethics of bicycle fitters as a part of a symposium on bicycle fitting, and a whole slew of other great exhibitors. Before we speak with frame builder Jeff Bach, though, I'd like to give you a quick update I just received from my friend Shannon Galpin about the continuing evacuations of cyclists and others out of Afghanistan. We are into week 10 and counting. There was a grueling 17-hour crossing into Pakistan of three different groups over the past week, and five more small groups will be moving on if the border remains as it is. One of the articles that was recently published might give you some breadth of the work as well as some perspective. Velo News did an extensive article about Sylvan Adams, the founder of the Israel Startup Nation, and his involvement early on in helping to rescue many, many athletes from Afghanistan. And for those who have asked, yes, I am the reporter he mentions at the beginning of the article. There is a link to the article on our blog for today's show. The work is still ongoing and the need is still great. You can read Shannon's updates and offer your support at fundly.com forward slash support dash Afghan dash cyclists. So let's get on with the show. Jeff Bach has been building lovely steel frames since 1975. Back in college, he studied art and also became an art teacher. Today, Jeff continues to think and build like an artist integrating his designs to include racks, fenders, and an overall aesthetic that appeals to anyone who loves classic bikes. We start at the beginning and bring it right up to date with his thinking about today's equipment and who is buying classic bikes. Hello, Jeff. Welcome to The Outspoken Cyclist. Thanks for being my guest this week. How are you? I'm well. Thank you. And uh, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. How's Iowa today? Uh, Today it's raining. Oh, welcome to my world. <laughs> yeah, yesterday we had a um, 
friend of mine went out and we did a birthday ride and um, you know it was absolutely gorgeous um, although we had well I mean you know if you do an out and back you're gonna have a headwind one direction we had a headwind on the way back but oh well <laughs> yeah that's Cleveland if you don't like the weather wait a minute and if you turn around you'll have a headwind both ways I don't know what goes on with the lake but <laughs> let's talk about Jeff Bach so you said to me that you don't think of yourself as a household name, but you've been building beautiful custom bikes for a long time, since 1975. How did you get into frame building? What was it that attracted you to the bicycle world? Oh, well, yeah, you know, I've been riding my whole life. I mean, I started out on a two-wheeler, I think, at age four, and um, I grew up in a relatively small town, and, you know, as a kid, a bicycle just expanded your range, you know, <laughs> and for some reason, like in high school, um, you know, a lot of my friends were into cars and stuff and that just, I figured out pretty quickly that they weren't able to go out and do stuff because, oh, I got to work because I, I got to pay, I got to make this car payment. Whereas I was scooting around on a bike and having a ball. So it just, you know, I, I guess I always just liked the freedom, and I managed to get into college on super secret double academic probation. And um, wait, wait, what does that mean? It means my high school record was not very good, but my art teacher saved me, and the university where I went every year awarded two full tuition scholarships and he had me apply and I was awarded one of them. And I guess between my ACT scores and um, the fact that <clears throat> the art department was going to pay my tuition for four years, they uh, leaned upon the registrar to uh, <laughs> let me in. So, and so what school is that? It was the university of Northern Iowa in Cedar Falls, Iowa. And it was a, you know, U University of Northern Iowa was known as a teacher preparatory school. So I thought, well, yeah, I'll be an art teacher. And then second semester of my junior year, uh, one of my education professors suggested I start spending more time over the curriculum lab instead of over the art studio or, you know, he's going to flunk me. And being young and dumb, I said, well, okay. Um, and I went over to the registrar's office and I dropped that class and added the five hours credit to my studio load. So <laughs> I graduated a little bit a year later, you know, a year later with just an art major and nothing to back it up. But the local bike shop where I'd been dragging all my friends in to buy bikes so we could go riding said, Hey, Jeff, you're graduating, aren't you? <laughs> and uh, I said, Well, yeah. They said, Do you need a job? And so I went to work at the bike shop. And like I said, I mean, I was young and I liked bikes and this was the bike boom. We were all just mad about 10 speeds. And I, I just couldn't imagine anything, a better place to work. You know, in a very, very short period of time, I went through several bikes until I was sitting there. With, I mean, I had a rally professional, you know, and I had acquired a 64 Schwinn Paramount. And, you know, you've been in the bike business, no, at, you know, at that time, those were kind of top of the line production bikes. But 
I was looking for, well, I want something like that, but I want a touring bike. I don't want a road racer. I want a touring bike. And, you know, it was 1974, 75. And you know, nobody, you know, the manufacturers weren't making a dedicated touring bike. And so like, well, custom, but you know, the only custom builder at that point I'd ever heard of was Albert Eisentrout. And, um, and I thought, you know, what I could, you know, the little bit of his work I'd seen, I mean, I was really, really impressed, but everything I'd seen of his were racing bikes. And so I had bought, <laughs> I had bought a Campanola toolkit. I mean, whoa! Oh, you know, I mean, if you're a bike mechanic, you got to have one, right? Yeah. And then it occurred to me that, well, you know, these are fine for a mechanic, but they're really kind of for a frame builder. And so you, you want this touring bike, maybe you ought to build build your own and like I said I, I wasn't real smart <laughs> but you know like where would you learn to do that never you know it's like I mean you know I mean you know there weren't schools at that point right so at that time you know the pilgrimage shop in Iowa was a place called Michael's Cyclery in Ames and um, Michael's sponsored a well-known race team um, and they were you know, a few years later, we're kind of famous for um, having greater access to like the Raleigh Team Pros than any other shop in the country. I, so I made the pilgrimage to Michael's and um, I knew Michael uh, Fatka and um, it was the owner. And I said, Michael, I want to I want to learn how to build frames. You know, who do I talk to? Where do I go? Do you know? And he says, no, but he's got this guy who works for him who's been messing around with it. And that guy was a guy named Mike Bornstein, who you know I mentioned earlier. And Bornstein well, is one of these guys who's just absolutely brilliant at figuring out how to do stuff. And he introduced me to Bornstein and I asked, well, where, where did you you know, where did you get your information get started? He says, well, there's this guy up in Minneapolis named Cecil Berenger. And he said, I went up and talked to him. Um, you know, I don't know how much you see, I had to pay him, but you know, he kind of talked to me and let me ask questions. And he you know, told me everything I kind of wanted to know. And I said, well, great, you know, would you give me his contact information? And he kind of looked at me and said, well, like, well, <laughs> sure. But he says, I'll tell you everything you told me and I won't charge you. <laughs> so I said, okay, cool. And he says, you know, are you serious about this? And I said, well, yeah. He said, well, okay. And he got out a pad of paper and he wrote down a list of tools. He says, go buy these tools. He says, in the meantime, pick out some tubes and some lugs and stuff. He says, take it back home and go do this and this and this. And when you get done, let me know and we'll come back here and we'll start brazing it together. And so that's what we did. And, um, <laughs> you know, so I don't know, I guess in the space of like, four Saturdays or Sundays it was, um, you know, we had put together a bike frame. I mean, with a lot of work, handwork, you know, on my own, you know, but um, yeah. Uh, the, the next one I built for the guy who, uh, I didn't have, I didn't own a car. And so there was a guy, you know, who drove me each week from, C, you know, from Cedar Falls to Ames, you know, to do this. So the second frame I built, I built for him. And he wrote it on the, uh, you know, the, 1976 bike centennial across the United States. And then 
my third frame I built for the uh, woman who uh, I'm now married to. Wow. She was a younger sister of a friend of mine. Um, a, a woman I who oh I'd met in, in school you know we'd been in some classes together I had introduced her to her first husband and you know I thought I mean I'd kind of been thinking uh, I mean I didn't see it go anywhere like I mean she's the younger sister of this friend of mine um, and we were going on bike rides together but one day she came in you know with a handful of cash and said uh, Jeff you know, we were talking about like what would the ideal touring bike look like? She says, I'd like you to build that for me. And you've heard of paradigm shifts. Well, I experienced one. So anyway, <laughs> she still has that bike and will not give it up. She claims she keeps it to keep me humble. So And is she right? That it keeps me humble? Yeah. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, Let me remind my listeners, we're speaking with Jeff Bach. He's a frame builder out of Iowa, and what a great story so far. I knew that that bike was still around. I read about it on your, I guess, on your website or or on your Facebook page. I don't remember, but I remember that the bike that you built for the woman who is now your wife is still a bike that exists today. How long have you been married? Um, Well, um. We got married in 79, so 40-some yeah, years. Yeah, that's a long yeah. time. That's a long time. So I, I want to ask you a question about Raleigh. Are you a Raleigh addict? Is that what I read, that you love Raleigh? Well, I do like Raleigh. So um, I don't know if addict is the right word. Okay. But every retail shop that I've ever kind of worked for um, sold Raleigh's. And th- that first one, which was Europa Cycles in Cedar Falls, you know, where I kind of, I guess, you know, kind of got started. Um, you know, I mean, it was the bike boom. We were all 10-speed mad, right? And, of course, 10-speeds were uh, it's a little bit like today. I mean, they're almost unobtainium. The demand was so high. I mean, w- we were ordering a container or two at a time if we could get them. And... Every 10 speed on the floor was sold. I mean, they were there just there so people could look and see what colors there were and we could fit people. And, you know, we'd have a container in the back and most of those were sold and we were taking names for people, you know, for the next one. And, you know, we we're assembling them. But after we assembled them, we'd have to test ride them. And of course, there's a three speed, you know, I mean, Raleigh did three speeds. And so we had to carry some three speeds. And I had a friend growing up who had a Schwinn three speed, but you know, and that was, you know, that was okay. But I got on one of those three speeds after assembling it, take it out for the test ride. It's like, well, this is pretty cool bike. (laughs) I mean, I mean, okay. I I mean, I wouldn't want to ride a century on it, but it's, um, God, you know, for knocking around, you know, town doing errands. I mean, this is really cool bike. And so, I mean, I kind of, kind of got into those and Raleigh really did have some nice bikes I mean I mean I think I hadn't learned to look beneath the paint yet but I mean I think almost all their bikes rode really well I mean you know like my pro rode beautifully and before that I had a Raleigh competition and that rode really really well I don't know it's just a matter what you're exposed to I guess 
I, growing up, I can remember that the dream bike for a teenager or a young person at the time was a Raleigh three-speed. And so that's, and I think what I ended up with was a Phillips, which is similar, you know, it still came out of, I believe it came out of England. It might even have come out of the Absolute, Raleigh. Absolutely. They're English and very likely it came out of one of Raleigh's factories. Yeah. So it was a really cool bike. So you mentioned fit and I want to talk about your process. You know, you're, you build steel, you build lug frames, you build touring frames. I know today the word, so Brian and I talk about this all the time. Is it, is it a touring frame? Is it a gravel bike? Is it a, is it a, a road bike? You know, all road bike to me, if it can take fenders and wider tires, it's a touring machine. And that's what, that's what we like uh, on most terrains. So tell me about your, your methods, how you determine your geometries and how you do your fitting since nobody can really come to you these days. Well, maybe. Well, geometry, I mean, I don't think I invented anything. Um, You know, back in the early days, you know, I, you know, carry around a tape measure and a new bike would come in, you know, something I hadn't seen before. And I'd get out the tape measure and measure everything, figure out, okay, you know, how long are the chain stays? How much drop is it? You know, you know, measure the angles, the top tube length relative to the seat tube length, the fork rake, all that kind of stuff, just kind of figuring out, okay, what people are doing. Well, pretty soon you realize that, well, you know, here's a range of things and apparently these things work. And so that's kind of where I based my geometries. And um, another thing, there's one of the bike magazines, um, like early on, like when you're fitting small people, you know, you, okay, they'd want a shorter top tube. So the usual thing that seems like they did is they'd make the seat tube real, real steep. So then they could do a short top tube and still get front wheel clearance, you know, with the pedal. But it's to me like, well, once you got the seat back where it's supposed to be, you haven't shortened the top tube at all. Right. <laughs> once yeah. you get them over, that's true. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the tube is shorter, but, you know, if you get the seat back where they're in the correct position over the pedals, you know, it's not, it's not a shorter distance. And so it seemed to me like the solution is, well, you get the seat angle where it needs to be for them. And then to get the wheel clearance, you got to slope the head angle out and then adjust the fork rate, you know, to get the kind of steering that they want. And, and what gave me a clue on that is one of the early bike magazines, and I don't remember which one it was, but um, there was this Dutch guy who was always king of the mountains um, back then, his name was Lucian Van Imp or something like that. I don't know if I'm pronouncing Oh, yeah. Anyway, they specced his bike. They told what all the angles was. And like, okay, here's like a road racing machine for a Tour de France racer who is like, I don't know how many times, was king of the mountains, right? And his, you know, his front head angle was like a 70-degree head angle. I mean, because he was a really little guy. And it's just like, well... Duh. I mean, that makes so much sense. And you can adjust the fork rate, of course, so that, you know, the trail, if that's important to you, is the same as it would be if it was a 73 degree to hangle with X amount of fork rake. And so it's like, yeah. 
And so that seemed to me like that was a better solution for getting the clearance than, than a steep head to. But anyway, but then that still doesn't answer fit. Um, you know, for a long time, I just use the, you know, I do body measurements and charts. Um, you know, I started out with, well, you know, the, you know, the old, that Italian cycle federation Coney book. Right. Um, but I learned early on that, you know, unless they were a, unless they wanted a, unless they were a serious racer and wanted a dedicated racing bike, you had to adjust those. I mean, generally the top tubes were going to be longer than people were going to be comfortable with. So what I still like to do is come in, do some measurements, have them bring a bike that they feel like they're comfortable on. Um, I, I, you know, if possible, I like to go on a ride with them so I can kind of watch how they ride, how they fit on the bike. And, you know, we kind of go from there. The easiest people, of course, to build for are the ones who have ridden lots of bikes and can talk to you about what they like. Right. And say, well, hey, I, I've got this bike and I really like this these aspects of it, but, you know, here's something that I, if I could change, this is what I'd want to change. And then here's this other bike and I really like this, but here's what I don't like. And so, you know, you kind of do the measurements, you kind of work out and you can kind of come up with something that's going to fit. But I know you are a fitter and I mean, I think fitting has gotten a whole lot more scientific. There's a lot of, I believe there's a lot of art to it. So I always start with the premise that nobody's really average, that everybody has sort of some uniqueness. Now today with an older rider, especially you're looking at a change in flexibility. You're looking at some things like maybe knee replacements, hip replacements, somebody crashed the bike and broke a collarbone. So I'm looking at the nuances that make fit dialed in a little more, but basic fit, just that basic geometry for a whole person, the person who is not damaged in a lot of ways. I agree with you. It's sensible thinking about what, you know, what has worked for so many decades. And then you go from there to make those subtle changes. Sure. And, and you brought up an interesting point, like you talk about the damage, but also just like the lack of flexibility that comes with, you know, getting older. Well, when I started, I was building for a lot more young people than I'm building now. And as, and one thing I've noticed is, you know, people are generally looking for higher handlebar positions and, you know, a shorter reach and, and stuff. And so, you know, you try to accommodate that. Right, right, right. And know who your customer is. <laughs> well, Oh, oh, no, absolutely. I mean, yeah. it's a custom bike. And so, you know, it's not a production bike. You know, you're trying to build it to suit this person for an intended purpose or purposes. Right, right. Let's take a short break. And when we come back, we'll talk some more. We're speaking with Jeff Bach. He is a frame builder, a master frame builder from Ames, Iowa. You're listening to The Outspoken Cyclist. Bicycle crash is not an accident. And when you find yourself in a situation that calls for experienced, effective, and positive legal support and advocacy, you can depend on any of North America's independent bike law members. Bike Law's cycling attorneys are members of our community committed to the pursuit of cycling safety and justice. 
For more information about Bike Law, log on to bikelaw.com. They're on your left, protecting your rights. We are back on the Outspoken Cyclist. If you're just joining me, I'm speaking with Jeff Bach, frame builder, Iowa, and we're talking about my favorite subject, custom bikes, which it is. It's one of my all-time favorite subjects. So who is your customer today? We were talking right before the break about knowing who that is. Who is it? Who is buying um, custom bikes from you today? Well, I mean, I mean, I guess that's the thing. I mean, you know, we discussed earlier in the show how I'm building with lugs. Right. And steel. And, well, I mean, I think steel is absolutely brilliant. Won't get an argument for me on that. And I really, really like lugs. I mean, I got nothing against, I mean, I understand, you know, you can weld a bike together and it's going to be a perfectly functional bicycle. I mean, not a problem. But I guess my issue with welding um, as a builder is, you know, you give some welders you know, here, here are the specs, here are the tubes, weld it together. If the welders are good, the welds are virtually identical. You give five other frame builders that, that set of tubes and a set of identical lugs, every frame is going to be, is going to, those lugs are going to look different. I mean, there's just a, everybody handles them well. I mean, really, really good guys all handle them differently. And there's a uniqueness to that, that, you know, as the, you know, the art major that appeals to the art major in me. So I guess I would say is, you know, my, well, you know, my customer base is people who I think like that, also appreciate that uniqueness. Um, You know, I guess, you know, maybe call them um, discerning enthusiasts. Oh, good term. Okay. Um, Yeah. I like it. You know, you know, we're talking about, um, you know, the Philly Bike Expo, you go there and, you know, there's a handful of builders there who are using lugs and are just doing gorgeous work. But there's also like a lot of people out there who are welding bikes together. And those bikes generally are lots less expensive. And so you got to have somebody who really appreciates that uniqueness. And I think that's a, that's, that's a, that's a smaller and smaller niche. It is a smaller niche. Do you think it would be larger if there were more attention paid to it by the media? I mean, everything we see today is carbon, 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 and more carbon, and maybe some more carbon. So, you know, as it's like the media grasps something and then takes it all the way to the nth degree, and yet we know there are custom builders like you, um, like Richard Sachs, like... Brian Chapman, who are doing such phenomenal work. And yet the younger, is there a younger generation that could be convinced that it is still a product worth trying? I mean, once somebody rides a really good steel bike, I think they get an experience unlike any carbon machine. Oh, I I still go back to this article that, and it's a decade, maybe two decades old now, but, um, there was a reviewer in one of the bike magazines was reviewed, you know, reviewed, I think it was six top of the line Italian bikes that all, and then, okay. And it was old enough that they were still all lugged steel. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's 
got to be at least two decades, right? Anyway, the reviewer just raved about them. The way they handled the climbing, the cornering, just the feel. He just, you know, he just loved them. But his closing thing was, he said, you know, the lightest one of these is a full half pound heavier than my carbon fiber, titanium, aluminum, whatever the hell it was he was riding. So he said, you know, I, I wouldn't have it. Wow. Are you, and I'm like, are you kidding? <laughs> and that is the whole thing. It's the, the weight weenies make me crazy. So that's another whole thing. But I agree. Are you able to overcome that? Is your customer, do you have some younger customers? Or are they all like us? Old buddy uh, duddies. Well, recently they've all been like us. You know, I mean, I know, yes, I've certainly built for old people. And like in my frame building class, I will have some younger people. Um, I mean, I haven't done a frame building class since COVID, but, um, but, right. um, but no, I had a, uh, I mean, hell, he was just in high school kid take the frame building class and was very into the lug, you know, thing. And so, I mean, I find that there are people who are into it and, um, you know, um, an art professor and an engineering professor at the University of Iowa got together and they started a frame building class. And um, several years ago, I met a young man who had taken that. And whereas a lot of, a lot of the people in the frame building class were, you know, they were doing welded kinds of things, titanium with, you know, all kinds of curved, you know, bent tubes and stuff. And, you know, a lot of really fun stuff, I think. But um, we have a, we have this local show every January called, I think, I think it's called the Iowa bike expo. And then there's a thing in the evening where they announce the rag bright route for the next year. Right. And it's really inexpensive and, it's easy for me to get to. <laughs> and so I went and that class was there with their projects. And this young man, um, his name was Willie Tan. And, you know, there's all, like I said, there's all these other welded together things. And here was just, just this lovely, very French looking, lugged by, you know, Rondo style bike. And it's just like, oh, how cool, you know. And Willie was very into that kind of thing. I mean, might still be. I mean, he graduated with a, you know, I mean, he's got a CPA license and, you know, I haven't heard from him in a little while, but, um, but I, I know he had the aim, he, you know, he wanted to build more frames. In fact, I helped him source tubing and spec, helped him draw up the plans for a, a touring bike for his sister, who was, I think, maybe not quite five feet tall. And, um, and so, you know, it's like, well, are you sure we can't get 700 C's on this? And I said, well, <laughs> Uh, probably not, not if she wants a level top tube, which is another one of her requirements. So we, you know, we went with a 26 of some kind, lovely, lovely bike. And he, through the class, took it out to one of the NABS things. in I think it was in Sacramento that year. And it was, you know, he had me paint just this gorgeous pastel pink. And, uh, you know, apparently, uh, apparently it um, attracted rave reviews. That's a good thing. That answers one of my questions. You're doing your own painting. Yes. Yeah, yeah. For years, I've been doing my own painting. Um, back in early days, well, the first three or four frames, I mean, were you know, you'd find somebody with a spray gun and you know, some guy at a body shop. And then for, I don't know, the next, for, for a few years, I had Eddie Weisler at Cycler North in Chicago do my painting. And um, 
he was the uh, Joe Bell of the era, I think. Bornstein and I were sharing a shop, you know, sharing a, a shop space. And, um, you know, we built a paint booth and started doing our own paint. It's, uh, it's time consuming. <laughs> it is. It is. Let me ask you something about some of the modern equipment, electronic shifting and disc brakes. Where do you stand on, <laughs> but well, I mean, of course you can't get anything right now, but that's not altogether true. And I do want to talk about that too, briefly, but, and everybody knows I'm relatively prejudiced against disc brakes on road bikes for the most part. And uh, electronic shifting on touring bikes just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. So where do you stand on that? I think I've recently lost some sales because you know, I mean, I'll, I'll get an inquiry and say, gosh, I really like your work. Do you do, ever do anything with discs? And it's like, well, what kind of bike are you interested in? And, you know, if they talk about, you know, like if it's any, any form of road bike, I say, why do you need a disc? Oh, I, good. I mean, I agree that the, I mean, they're really effective at stopping you. I mean, no argument, but the fork and the head part has to be so rigid and a nice steel fork you know there's a spring and a resilience to it and there's a ride quality you get from that that i don't think you can compensate for with a fatter tire i mean not entirely i mean and i'm not down on fat tires necessarily but you know let's be reasonable (laughs) and the question is that where discs are appropriate maybe in cyclocross, maybe in mountain biking, isn't what we're talking about here. But when oh. I see when I see riders in the pro peloton in Europe with disc brakes on their road bikes, I'm wondering how are the front ends of those bikes responding? You know, the, they're riding small bikes, so they're front loaded to begin with. And now you've got this disc that's going to throw them 300 feet in the air. I, I'm I'm just not convinced it's the right answer. You know, the pro peloton, I mean, we're talking about really skillful riders. Hopefully. Yeah, well, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> allegedly. Um, let let well, me say okay, allegedly. Uh, allegedly very, very good riders. And right. I'm not saying there isn't a place. I'm not saying there isn't a place for disc brakes. Like you mentioned, mountain bikes. I think, you know, if you've got a suspension shock, right. suspension shock front fork, yeah, by all means put disc on it. You know, because the fork isn't going to be responding the way a quote, quote, rigid steel fork does. No, I, I have the same questions. Okay. And electronic shifting is like, well, once again, if you are, you know, if you're talking about those guys in the Peloton and, you know, it's just every minute advantage you can get, you probably want to take. But let's face it, that's not most of us. No. And, yeah, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I mean, I've ridden bikes with disc brakes, and it's like, you know, okay, yeah, they do stop really well. <laughs> okay, we can, we can give them that. Yeah. So you bring up the fact that electronic maybe isn't for everybody, even though that's the way everything's going. As Shimano, who is the biggest supplier, begins dropping things like their regular hubs, non-disc hubs, um, their mechanical shifting, their mechanical braking. What are you doing to equip your bikes, I imagine you build full bikes, not just frame sets. Um, I'm happy to build a full bike. I mean, oh. I'm, ha- I'm happy to do that, but I'm also happy, like, you know, here's a frame and fork. Um, okay. Or in the case of, like, 
well, you know, let, let's say like a, like a touring Rondo or a commuter bike where, you know, anymore, I mean, you know, part of the beauty of those is the way you get, you know, you can kind of integrate everything and, you know, make it all so it'll look like it just belongs together. And like on, on a lot of the Rondo bikes, I'll have to build the rack or racks for them. And so you have an opportunity to just get everything. So it's just, I guess, seamless. And, and so like in that case, like, you know, I paint the bike and like if it's a metal fender, I'll paint accents on the fender so it coordinates. And and the metal fenders take a lot of fitting. Yes, they do. And especially if you're integrating the wires and, you know, you're running the wires through the fenders and stuff like that. And so a lot of people want me to do that. So you can hand them, I guess maybe I'll end up assembling them, but they might bring in their own wheels. They might bring in their own drivetrain and I'll hang the stuff on there. And, I, and I'm happy to work with them and or some bike shop if they got a favorite bike shop where they want to do that stuff. And the other problem with complete bikes, from my standpoint, is even before the Internet, I'd occasionally get somebody who, like, you know, you give them a complete price on the bike and they say, well, if I buy these parts from this mail order house and these parts from this mail order house and these parts from this mail order house, I can save $75 over the price you quoted. And I'm like, well, yeah, but my price includes assembly. And they say, yeah, well, $75. You mean you're not going to, you're not going to budge on that? And I said, no. And they said, oh, okay. And, you know, buy, no, buy the parts someplace else. I mean, you know, I, <laughs> with the internet, it seems like you can buy parts cheaper than I can quote, quote, get them wholesale. There's no question about it, that the both the gray market, just the way the markets are set up, the way, yeah. I'm happy to I'm happy to quote people prices on a complete bike, but it's like I'll be upfront. You know, you can maybe get it cheaper somewhere else because you know, I mean Well, it's interesting that the consumer or customer, client, whatever you want to call him or her, doesn't often think that our time and effort is worth something. Well, and that is another whole topic that we could jump down a rabbit hole and be gone for the rest of the day. But certainly it's one that is discussed ad nauseum in the business about why mechanics can't make any money, why they can't send their kids to college, pay for mortgage, well, whatever. Yeah, I mean, I started building bikes in 75 and you know, I started out in Cedar Falls, spent a year in Grinnell, Iowa, and then moved to Ames at the behest of Michael Thacker from Michael Cycle to build bikes for his racing team. And Ames is the home of Iowa State University. And I thought, well, okay, if I'm going to be starting doing production for this racing team, I need to build some more widgets. And so I thought, well, I'll take industrial tech classes at Iowa State. And I thought, well, as long as I'm going to school, maybe I'll finish my teaching certificate. Aha. Uh -huh. And so I did. And so in 1982, I started teaching. And I don't know what you think, but like I, I thought for years, teachers are underpaid. I still think teachers are underpaid, but not like frame builders are underpaid. <laughs> or bike mechanic. That, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. You better do it for the love. <laughs> yeah, because if you're good at it, most people have no idea what it takes and how difficult and, you know, just 
everything that it takes to get to that point. Labor intensive. Well, it's labor intensive and it is skill intensive. Right. Artistic skill, all of it. Oh, all of it. Mechanical engineering, technical skill, whatever. And like one frequent comment from the frame building class is, you know, people are like, wow, I'm really glad I did this, but I had no idea. And like when I talked to Doug Faddick, um, and Doug and I have been friends for years, he does a lot of frame building classes. And, you know, um, that's, I understand that's a common response from his students as well. Yeah, I, I think when Brian took his class, he already knew going in what it was going to be. He yeah. took it actually to enhance his design work and then sure. ended up building, building, you know, frames on his own. But there was no question in his mind what the labor intensity skill, you know, the tools, just just the tooling you need, how many files. I mean, I've, you know, just people don't don't really understand and yet they ride these magnificent machines and are, are delighted and I'm delighted. So this has been a great conversation. What's your lead time right now? If somebody were to say, hey, Jeff, build me a bike. A lot shorter than I would like. Okay, then that's a really interesting answer. <laughs> All right, then let me ask you my three favorite questions. What's your favorite food? Um, it'd be easier to tell you what I don't like. Okay. <laughs> a foodie. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, Let's just leave it at that. Okay, you're not picky. You're not too picky. Okay. Not too picky. What music do you like to listen to? I'm kind of a, I guess anymore you call it classic rock. Oh, okay. We're, you know, I'm in the home of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So, yeah. yeah, uh, So, like in my case, mid 60s up into the early mid 70s is kind of my sweet spot. Although Springsteen, Tom Petty, and some of that stuff, you know, um, Mark Knopfler, I think is amazing. Yes, he is. Um, but I also really, really enjoy classical. You're a classic frame builder. I mean, that's right in that sweet spot. And well, well, there you go. Do you have any pets? Do you count bicycles? No, I don't. They're somewhat inanimate till you get on them. But I've had lovely conversations with my bike. <laughs> <laughs> Out on the road. Who else are you going to talk to? Oh, and in fact, I mean, just just occurs to me that you know, um, people have all these. Or for a while, there was a thing like you have a comfort animal and you know you get to take it on the airplane with you. And I'm thinking, well, why can't you do that with your bicycle? Yeah, right. It's like people who now we're at the home of the Cleveland Orchestra. And I know that they buy extra seats for their instruments, like their cellos and their violins. Oh, well, some of them are worth. Right. Yeah, well worth the price of the seat. Right, right. Last question is how can people find out more about Jeff Box? And his well, work. unfortunately, my website has been under construction for the last 20 years. Um, there is the, you know, the, I, I've got a Facebook page that's, you know, uh, Jeffrey Bach Custom Cycles. Uh, you can email me or, you know, heaven forbid, give me a call. Okay. Well, this has just been delightful. I'm really glad that you might be not a household name, but now you are definitely a household name for me. I really enjoyed our conversation and uh, I hope to get to see you in Philly. All right. um, well, I'll, uh, I'll try to attend, I'll try to attend your seminar. Oh, or, or you can just, we can text each other and just meet up. Okay. Well, I, I would, I would need your phone number or something, but I, I'm sure I can get that to you. All right. Well, <laughs> I, imagine I, get, I imagine I can get you mine. So. There you go. 
Thank yeah, you. Okay, thank you. Are we off now or are still No, on? not yet, but we're going to say goodbye. <laughs> All, right. All right, Jeff, thanks. And thank we you. will uh, talk again. I wasn't sure going in, but I enjoyed this. So thank oh, you. Oh, good. I'm glad you did. My thanks to Jeff Bach for taking time to speak with me today. You can learn all about his work and contact him on his Facebook page, Jeffrey Bach Custom Cycles. Let's take a short break, and when we return, we'll talk with Philly Bike Expo owner and producer, Bina Belinky Trahan. You're listening to The Outspoken Cyclist. WJCU, University Heights, from the campus of John Carroll University. We are back on The Outspoken Cyclist. I'm Diane Jenks. If you are jonesing for the sights, sounds, and people who immerse themselves in the bicycle world, and you're anywhere near Philadelphia, PA, next week, the Philly Bike Expo is back. Opening Saturday, November 6th at 10 a.m. Eastern and running through Sunday, November 7th, the show promises to deliver something for everyone who loves our sport. Bina Belinky Trahan is the show's owner and producer. Hi, Bina. Welcome back to The Outspoken Cyclist. It's good to speak with you again. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. It's good to speak with you, too. It's good that the Philly Bike Expo is back, too. Yes. So it's next weekend, November 6th and 7th. I'm really glad you're able to offer it. Uh, it was a bye year last year, of course, because of COVID. Before we get to what's going on with the expo, what did you have to do protocol-wise to get people back to the show this year? What are people going to see when they come into the convention hall? So the two main changes for this year are that, well, Philadelphia in itself, but also the Pennsylvania Convention Center has an indoor mask requirement. So masks will be required in the convention center regardless of vaccination status. Um, and although Philly has their own requirement that it can be either or, the Pennsylvania Convention Center has a blanket requirement due to the fact that they have multiple shows that go on at a time. So if one shows requiring vaccine proof and one isn't, you know, it gets tricky. So they just do a you know, a blanket mask requirement. So masks will be required um, anytime in the building. And unfortunately, we had to eliminate the test track this year due to widening the aisles. Um, we wanted to really make sure that there was enough physical distance for folks um, to be comfortable inside the space. Normally, you know, on a, on a regular year, you know, it gets so, so crowded. And we loved seeing that. That was always you know, the benchmark of a great show, but now, you know, we're in different times and we want people to be able to move about comfortably and not, you know, within inches of, e you know, each other's faces. I wanted to ask you a question about numbers, not just of, of, uh, of attendees. Do you have to limit attendees? And how about exhibitors? Have you had to limit them? No, our space is really, really large due to, you know, our test track area. So um, we had plenty of space to um, host the same amount of exhibitors and attendees. Our exhibitor numbers are, you know, smaller than 2019, which was, you know, our largest show, our 10th anniversary. 
but we still have a really great list. And um, I think, you know, everyone is going to have some really special interactions. I think they'll be more special than usual after, you know, not having a show and, you know, hopefully folks understand that, yeah, we're still in a pandemic year and um, things may not look exactly the same as they normally do. We're speaking with Bina Blinky Trahan. She is the producer of the Philadelphia Philly Bike Expo. Wow, it's been 11 years almost. I can't believe that. It yeah, was such, it was a tiny little show in the armory, and now you're taking up a big convention center place. That's so cool. So cool. And I guess when you think about it, you're probably one of the only shows happening in 2021. On the East Coast, I believe so. Um, I know, you know, Sea Otter happened. Oh, right. A few weeks ago, you know, Cabda had a couple of shows, but they're industry only. So as far as consumer shows, I think we're the only indoor show on the, I think maybe in the country for 2021. Well, I'm glad you're there. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about the categories. You have advocacy, you have manufacturers, you have frame builders, you have travel. What Will you be breaking the show down into sections or you just kind of go through the show and see all the different people? Yeah, go through the show and see all the different people. We break it down by category on the website so that folks can easily find who they're looking for. Um, You know, if a retailer is going to the show, um, you know, to specifically chat with component brands, they can kind of you know, plan out their day. But we find that mixing everyone together in the hall makes for a better flow of traffic for everyone um, instead of kind of grouping people together. Who are some of the exhibitors maybe who haven't been to the show before? And then I know there are a couple who have always been there that have opted out this year for a variety of reasons. Um, Yeah, so we we have a really good frame builder list this year. I guess that has to do with the fact that they're they're making their stuff here, so they are not falling into the bike supply issue category. So we have a really great list of builders, um, some new ones that have never come before, Amigo, uh, Bender Bicycle Company. We have three builders who are coming for the first time who will be in the SRAM booth who won the Frame Builder Inclusivity Scholarship, um, and that's uh, Jubilee, Relstone, and Frontier Bikes. Also new this year for builders is Pachyderm, um, Tamarack. Uh, yeah, there's like the builder list is really stacked and really exciting. It sounds like it. How about industry manufacturers? So you mentioned SRAM uh, and they are delivering some product. But Shimano and Campy and those guys, how, I don't, are they going to be there? Are they going to, I don't know what's going on. The supply chain is such a mess. Yeah, it is. You know, actually Shimano and Campy um, have not come in the past in the way that SRAM shows up. So it's not really an unusual year for us in that department. Um, For bike manufacturers, we're very excited to have Rivendell um, exhibiting. Oh, cool. Is Grant coming? No, he's not. I forget. He was supposed to. I had a badge for him and then um, his plans changed. But yeah, so they're coming. Um, That's going to be really cool. You know, we have like Wahoo Fitness coming with their trainers and stuff. So we have a really good um, mix of, you know, 
components, accessories and apparel, um, you know, bike manufacturers and frame builders, and of course our advocacy um, folks. Um, we have KRT um, is a new club in Philly. I say new because they're, you know, a couple years old, but they've really, you know, gained a lot of traction, especially over, um, you know, the pandemic year when a lot of people started riding. And so they are a, you know, a black organized and owned club and apparel company. Um, and they've just been like a really cool addition to the Philly cycling scene. And, you know, we've partnered with them over the last couple of years. And so we're really excited that they're going to have a booth at the expo and people can meet them and, you know, ride with them to the show. They were highlighted in Grid Magazine recently and uh, just what a handsome looking group and beautiful jerseys. They were really standout jerseys. So that's really yeah. cool. I'm glad to hear that. So let I know you you must be running around like a chicken with your head cut off. So tell me uh, or tell my listeners how they can find out more, get tickets, and let's repeat the dates and the location. Sure. So it's November 6th and 7th, next weekend, Saturday and Sunday. Um, more information at phillybikeexpo.com. And tickets can also be purchased on the website. Uh, tickets can be purchased on site as well, but you will save if you buy in advance. Okay. And are you going to have bike parking again? Yep. We will have free indoor bike valet. So anyone who wants to ride to the show will have a safe, secure indoor spot for their bike. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing you and uh, participating once again in the Philly Bike Expo. We've been speaking with Bina Belinky trahan She is the Philly Bike Expo director, producer. She's the big kahuna. Thanks so much for talking with me, and I look forward to seeing you. Thank you. See you soon. All righty. My thanks to Bina for joining me on the show this week. If you want to save a few dollars to spend on some great swag at the show, log on to phillybikeexpo.com and purchase your tickets there. You can also purchase tickets at the door. And you might want to remember that daylight savings time ends overnight, so Sunday's show will be an hour earlier than you might have expected. My thanks also to Jeff Bach for a great conversation, and of course my thanks to you for listening. Remember to check out our blog, OutspokenCyclist.com, to see a synopsis of the show, as well as photos and links. And please rate the show on your favorite podcast app. Next week, we talk with Bernie Bernstein about his progress since the horrific crash that almost took his life and his statement before the court as the man who hit him and took off was sentenced. I hope you have a great week. Stay safe, stay well, and remember... There is always time for a ride. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us today on The Outspoken Cyclist with Diane Jenks. We welcome your thoughts and contributions on our Facebook page. Or visit OutspokenCyclist.com to leave a comment on any episode. We will be back next week with new guests, topics, conversations, and news in the world of cycling. Subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app and you'll never miss an episode. The Outspoken Cyclist is a copyrighted production of DBL Promotions with the assistance of WJCU-FM Cleveland, a service of John Carroll University. 
Thanks again for listening. Ride safely, and we'll see you next week.